Well, good morning. How are we? That's weak. Good morning. Okay. This morning we continue in our Lenten series, A Costly Journey, as we consider the cost of discipleship, the cost of true discipleship, and, and our hope and our prayer as we have uh, prepared uh, for this series, as we spent time months ago preparing for this series and asking God, what, what does the series through Lent look like for us as a church? We felt compelled to invite all of us to consider the cost of true discipleship. Not cultural discipleship, not the kind of discipleship that convinces us that checking a few boxes, coming to church, having a quiet time is enough, but considering what it means that discipleship costs us our life, that in order to truly find life that Jesus promises in John 10, 10, when he says, I came that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly, depending on the translation you're looking at, that that is a life that actually costs us something. In fact, it costs us everything. Jesus makes very clear to us that in order to find life, we have to be willing to lose our lives. So what what does the journey of discipleship cost us? This quote by Brennan Manning is one that I used in Crossroads when we began this series. And and my hope and my prayer is that it, it helps us to frame for us what the cost of discipleship is, what this journey through the season of Lent to Good Friday and Easter Sunday could be for us. Manning says this, to be a Christian is to be like Christ. Somehow we must lose our life in order to find it. Christianity preaches not only a crucified God, but also crucified men and women. May may I never boast except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, that from Galatians 6.14. And he says this, There is no discipleship without the cross. I'm not a follower of Jesus if I live with him only in Bethlehem and Nazareth and not in Gethsemane and on Calvary too. What would our lives begin to look like if we were willing to leave the quaintness of Bethlehem, willing to leave the obscurity of Nazareth and journey with Jesus to the cross, to wrestle with him in Gethsemane knowing that what, we, what is being asked of us is, in fact, costly. It is, in fact, difficult to journey with him to the suffering of the cross, knowing that we must lay down our lives as his followers in order to truly find life as it was meant to be lived. Not a life of our own making, but the life that God intends for us to have through Jesus Christ. That's the invitation for discipleship. And I want to encourage you. And that wherever you are on that journey this morning is the best place for you to begin that journey. We can wish and we can hope and we can long to be somewhere else by comparing our lives to other people. But wherever you are this morning, wherever this message is hitting you, whether you are in this space or whether you are watching our live stream or whether you will listen to this later on during the week, wherever you are is the best place for you to begin that journey. And we've considered that discipleship costs us our lives. We've considered that discipleship costs us our busyness. We've considered that it costs us our wealth, that it costs us our time. This morning, I want us to consider that the cost of of grace, the cost of acceptance, what it costs us, what it might cost those around us. We'll be in Luke's gospel this morning as we have been through the entirety of this series as we're in the journey narrative of Luke's gospel. 
We read at the beginning of this series in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus' eyes were set resolutely toward Jerusalem, and that's where we have been with him since that Sunday we began. Let's look at a familiar passage in Luke's gospel. From Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11, this is the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Hear these words, perhaps with new ears this morning. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals On his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never, you you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes here, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Unlike some of us, or I should say unlike the children I have, or unlike some of us who like to know that people notice us and and like to be the center of attention, like to put ourselves in place where people do notice us, Jesus doesn't just walk around telling stories for the sake of telling a story. He doesn't just walk around. He's not walking around with his disciples and saying, oh, hey, I have a story to tell. Jesus always tells a story in response to something. Jesus always acts in response to something. Jesus doesn't waste a moment. Everything that Jesus does is calculated and for a purpose. And the same is true with this parable. 
Jesus doesn't just tell a story that in his mind he's thinking, this will really get him. This one will tug at the heartstrings. No, Jesus tells this story in response to what is happening around him. If we go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 15, we read now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And he begins with parables that are familiar to us. There were a hundred sheep and one was lost and the shepherd left the 99 to go and find the one. There were 10 coins and one was lost. And so the woman turned her house upside down in order to find the lost coin. And the thing that unites both of these stories and the story that we read of the prodigal son or the lost son, the son who has left and returned home, is that the theme in each of these stories is a theme of celebration. Theme of celebration. And I want to offer this from C.S. Lewis as we prepare to step into this, this parable that is so familiar to so many of us. Not C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright. Uh, both first names are just... Uh, Initials, that's the word, right, not abbreviations, initials. N.T. Wright says this, of this story. Sometimes when a storyteller leaves us on the edge of our seats like this, it's because we are supposed to think it through, to ask ourselves where we fit within the story, and to learn more about ourselves and our church as a result. And the reason that he says this is, the way that Jesus ends this story of the two sons and the father who ran. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What happened with the older son? Did he go in and celebrate? We don't know. We don't know how he responded to the celebration that is taking Jesus tells this story because what is happening here is that you have two competing banquets taking place in the kingdom of God. Jesus sharing table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus sharing table fellowship with those who have betrayed their own people and those who are as far from God as they could possibly be. And this wasn't the breaking of bread of com- in, in, in what we understand as communion or the Last Supper. This is sitting down and sharing a meal together. This was a sacred for the people of God. To share table fellowship was for the host to say to those who were with him, you are my welcome guest. You have a place here. You are like family to me. Jesus is breaking all of the rules by sharing a meal with these tax collectors and sinners, with the least and the lost, with the outcast, with the betrayers of their own people, with those who were far from God. And Jesus welcomes them in and says, you have a place here, a banquet celebration for those who have likely never been welcomed to any place other than the places with their own kind. Standing against that is the banquet that the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees feel like it is their duty to protect, their job to protect, to keep sacred what is sacred to keep those outside, outside, to make sure that the ways of God and and the law of God is to be followed to a T. And only those who do that earn for themselves a seat at the table. 
to competing celebrations, to competing banquets, and Jesus, in telling these parables, particularly the last one, is blowing open their understanding of what the kingdom of God is meant to look like. Where are you in this story? Where do you find yourself? Perhaps you could say, at any given moment in my life, or as as I have journeyed through life, I have found myself in all of these places. I have found myself in the role of a father who has been hurt by a child who has been hurt by one he loves. I've, I've found myself in the place of the younger son who has said to the father, give me my life. I want it the way that I want it. I found myself in the place of the older son who has said, I've done everything right. Where is my celebration? Friends, the only way to truly, I believe, appreciate this parable is just to tell the story. Just to try to get inside of culturally what this would have meant. The weight that these words that Jesus is speaking would have carried to those who were hearing them. These scribes and Pharisees and, and even the, the tax collectors and sinners who were gathered with him. For the younger son to go to the father and say to him, I want my inheritance now. I want what is mine. I want the life that is coming to me, but I want to be able to live it now. Is for the younger son to say to the father, you're dead to me. I don't want to wait until you leave this earth. I don't want to wait until your time here is over to get what is coming to me. I want it now. And in saying that to the Father, he is saying to me, what is mine matters more to me than who you are to me. And, and this, imagine the, the toil that this would, have, um, this would have meant for the Father. He didn't have a, a third of their wealth in liquid assets. It would have meant the giving off or the selling off of land or the giving of land to the son and watching the son sell this land off, that which he had worked hard for, maybe which had been passed down from generation to generation. He gives it to the son and watches the son just sell it. And then the son takes the earnings and goes to live the life that he wants to live. This would have been, this was actually a punishable offense. And yet the father gave over that which was coming to the son. Hearing in that request those words, you're dead to me. I want what I want now. So he gives the son what would have been coming to him anyway. The son takes what is his and he journeys away from him. He journeys away from the Father. And if you notice, as the parable unfolds, the further he gets from home, the further he gets from the Father, the more confused he becomes about his identity. The more confused he becomes over who he is. To the point that he ends up destitute with nothing left. Nothing left to show for this request that he made of the Father. Nothing left for the request that was, I want my life and I want it now. I want all that is mine and I want to live life the way that I want to. And as he journeys further and further from home, he forgets who he is. To the point that he is willing to go to a citizen of this foreign land and hire himself out and say, 
nothing left. I'll do whatever you have for me to do. I'm hungry. And he is sent to work with the pigs. And, and for a Jewish man, this would have been an, an animal that was unclean, an animal that he, he would have wanted to stay as far away from as possible. And my guess is, although I have never worked with pigs profession, uh, personally or professionally, uh, <clears throat> or just recreationally, I've just never spent time with pigs. The, the closest I've come to recreating with pigs is enjoying uh, good Eastern-style barbecue. Amen? <clears throat> I would imagine that for one who works with pigs, it means that you have to get in the muck and the mire and the slop with the pigs. And so this Jewish man who would have wanted to stay as far away from the, just the filth that was this animal to begin with now finds himself in, in the very mess that is the life of this animal. So desperate that he reaches a point where he, he says, gosh, maybe I could just eat the pods that are left for the pigs. And the reason that he's gotten to this point is that famine has come. He has nothing left. Friends, famine will always come. Famine will always come. If we seek to live a life based on the pursuit of pleasure, based on the pursuit of making a name for ourselves that is outside of the name that God wants to speak over us as his children, if we want to seek to numb ourselves to the pain of this world by amassing wealth, by amassing possessions, by seeking advancement in this, in this life, by, by reaching out and grabbing hold of that which the world offers us and promises us, famine will always come. We will always reach a point where we are left to question, is this all there is? How have I gotten to this point in my life? I, I wept through the first two songs that we sang because this is part of my testimony. This is my life. I, I understand where the prodigal son is, where the younger son is, because I've lived that. I grew up in the church, and I'm so thankful for my upbringing. I came to know Christ as a, as a sophomore in high school, school through the beautiful ministry of young life. The gospel was presented to me in a way that I'd never experienced before, and I thought there must be something to this life with Jesus, and so I said yes to Jesus. And, and then... After that, I began to rebel. I was so thankful that I had a mentor in that time when I, after I came through that season, I asked this question, why was it after I said yes to life with Jesus that then partying became appealing to me? Chasing relationship became appealing to me. I, that never made sense to me. And he said, until you said yes to Jesus, you were no threat to the enemy. But the moment that you said yes, all of a sudden you are a threat to the the work that the enemy is seeking to do in this world. And so I tried really hard for too many years to live with a foot planted in two worlds. I partied every Friday and Saturday night. I was in church every Sunday morning, youth group every Sunday evening, Bible study every Wednesday morning before school. And it wasn't until my freshman year of college where I came through a week that to this day I am convinced that only by the grace of God did I survive. I came to the end of that week and my friend and I were on our way home from the beach. He was driving. 
The other two guys in the car were asleep. I was sitting in the back seat awake. No one was talking. And I heard the closest I believe I've come to hearing the voice of the Lord say, Bernie, I have more for you than this. It's time to come home. This is where we find the younger son. It's time to come home. So he gathers up his courage because there's nothing more courageous than acknowledging our need, than acknowledging our sinfulness, because this would have meant going back to the Father. And, and as he says, I sinned before heaven and I sinned before you. He sucks up his courage and begins the long journey home and imagine the time that that gave him to rehearse and to think about what he would say to his father. And notice that he goes in and says, I, I, if, if you would just, his plan is to go to the father and say, if you would just take me on as a hired servant. This would have been different than a household servant. A hired servant was, a, was day labor, was a day worker. You didn't live in the house, you didn't stay in the house, but it meant that you were paid and it meant that you, um, that, that you had the means to, to eat just to survive, to live. So he wasn't even willing to, to go to the father and say, would you just take me on as one of your household servants? He was willing to go and say, would you just take me on as day labor? Because I have nothing else, I have nothing left. And he begins the long journey home. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. This is beautiful. His father saw him not leaning against the fence post saying, finally, here he comes. I cannot wait to lay into him. Jesus says, filled with compassion he ran to his son and threw his arms around him. This would have been a completely undignified thing for the father to do because he would have had to hike up his robes, bear his probably really pasty white legs, <laughs> and run to the son. Not to wait until his son got home, but to go and meet him on the way. To run to him. Wrap him up in his arms. Yes, to show love to him, but I wonder if, if some of it was to protect him. Because the closer that the son got to town, the closer that he got to the judgment of those who knew what he had done to his family, who knew what he had done to his father, and who out of love for this family maybe would have wanted to execute their own justice against him. So the father ran to the son, yes, out of love for him, but also out of, out of a means of just protecting him and saying, no, he's mine. He's mine. And he said to his servant, go and get the robe, go and get the ring, the ring that would have borne the signet of their family as a way to say to the son, remember who you are. You are mine. You belong to me. Those rags that you're wearing, Those don't signify who you are as a part of this family. It's time to take off the sackcloth. 
It's time to put on the robes of one who has a name, who has an identity, and who has a place. When he was at the end of his rope, he knew that there was a place that he could return to. More importantly, church, he knew that there was a person he could return to. And for us, that person is Jesus. And the gift of repentance is simply the, the, the gift of, of realizing that we are at the end of our rope and realizing that we can wake up and realizing that there is, a, there is a turning around that can take place and that turning around is always a turn toward home. And knowing that in Christ we have someone who is waiting for us, who is running to us to wrap, up, wrap us up in his arms, to call us by name, to say, you are mine, you belong to me. And to hear the words from him, let's celebrate. It's time to kill the fatted calf. It's time to fire up the grill. We are going to celebrate because you who are lost are not found. You who are dead are alive. Then there's the older brother, the one who never left home, the one who never stopped serving, the one who every day was willing to go and roll up his sleeves and serve in the field, and that's where he is when he smells the barbecue, when he hears the revelry, and he pulls one of the servants aside and says, hey, what's going on? Haven't you heard? Your brother is home. He's returned. Your dad's throwing a party for him. And the response of the son is not, the older son is not to run to the celebration, to be with his brother to wrap him up in his arms just to pitch a fit and to essentially say he doesn't deserve to be here he doesn't deserve a celebration he squandered all that you gave him I, I've done everything that you asked me to I followed the rules I never stopped working for you and, and you don't even give me a, a, a goat to celebrate with my friends and, and yet when, when, when the rebel comes home you kill the fatted calf, you pull out all the stops, and you celebrate him. I wonder who was farther from God in that moment. The sinner or the one who is self-righteous? Friends, I wonder if we allow our, our devotion and, and, and the duty that we feel to be a good follower of Christ, to be a good Christian, if you want to think of it that way. In our hearts, do we eventually become prodigals in that? Is that an act of rebellion? Because we're unwilling to, to believe that we deserve the lavish love of God. Not because we've earned it, not because there's anything that we've done. For this older son, it was... Everything I've done, I've done the way that it was supposed to be done. Therefore, I'm the one that should receive a banquet. Friends, in the therefore, it's always grace. It doesn't matter how faithful we think we are. The only reason that we, have, we, we are given a place, a seat at the table, a place at the banquet is because of the grace of God. Yes, we ought to strive to be faithful. But it shouldn't be out of grudging submission. It should be out of glad surrender for all that we've been given in Christ.
Let me read this quote from Paul David Tripp as we consider the older brother's obedience, as we consider maybe those of us who feel like, no, I've, I've always been faithful. That's how I believe I'm supposed to live, so where's mine? He says, for the believer, obedience is not pain, but a joy. Each act of obedience celebrates the grace that motivates and empowers it. It is a wonder of transforming grace that the heart of a self-focused human being can abandon the pursuit of his own little kingdom and give itself to serve the purposes of the kingdom of another. Anytime we desire in word, thought, or action to do what pleases God, we are being rescued, transformed, and empowered by His grace. So smile when you obey. You are experiencing the riches of grace. Give thanks when you submit. You are being rescued by grace. Celebrate when you make the right choice. You are being transformed by grace. Sing for joy when you serve God's purposes. You have just given evidence of the presence of redeeming grace in your life. This older brother heard the words, everything I have is yours. You already know who you are. You already have a place at this table. Friends, I don't know where you find yourself in this story. Again, I don't know if you are like the father who has been wounded. I don't know if you are like the younger son who has squandered everything, who feels far from home, who needs to hear this morning that there is a home that you can return to and there is a person there waiting and his name is Jesus. Or if you are like the older son who feels like I've always done the right thing, where is mine? And in that, I want you to hear, as Paul David Tripp says, that it's all grace. Even the desire for you to serve and be faithful is an example of God's grace in your life. And our response as the people of God who have heard that call for home is to take on the role of the Father and being willing to welcome others. I'd like to close with this. And these are words written by a man who was a part of me hearing that call. His name is Bill Goins, and he was the area director for Young Life in Greensboro for a lot of years and was the first person to ask me prior to that season of rebellion or in the midst of it, actually prior to that moment where I, where I woke up and heard the call home, he was the first person to, to say to me, Vern, do you think this is all there is? Don't you think that maybe there's more for you than this? He, he wrote these words, and, and he says this is, it's called my commitment. And he's, he's writing this in, in the context of ministry to high school students, but we could apply this to anyone that we know that is far from God. And, and so what if we took up this mentality and we became like the father who welcomed home those who were lost? He says, as long as high school kids mill around at ball games looking for love in all the wrong places, as long as they desperately seek an identity based on the opinion of friends and reputation, as long as kids limp through the stands broken by family strife, enslaved by drugs, alcohol, and sex, I want to be found not in the adult section where it is respectable and controlled, but right in the middle where passions, vulgar and profane, blurt out obscenity, where raucous and reckless facades hide wounded hearts filled with torment and fear, where the price tags have been changed and the darkness confuses, right in the middle where God has positioned me to shine forth his grace, his hope, his love, and his truth. As long as there is an enemy who can convince his victims that tomorrow doesn't matter, 
that harm will not find them, that chains are like jewelry and cool is free. As long as his lies leave character, soul, and life in ruins when thrill goes ill and fun turns fatal. As long as terminal is only a passage word to an eternity of one's own choosing. As long as God has rendered him a defeated foe, using the weakest of us to shine a light that pierces the darkest places, that brings rescue to the lost. As long as the darkness is blasted away by the light of the world, the light that lives within all who know, follow, and love him. As long as there is such darkness, I'll man my post right in the middle of all that chaos, holding my position until he calls me another play and I steal home. As long as we stand in such an important place, we must not forget what it means to be salt and light in this tasteless and dark generation. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who beckons us home. That you are a God who in your son Jesus runs for us the moment that we make that turn toward home. Runs for us and wraps us up in his arms and speaks over us who we are in you. We're so thankful that that same grace is is extended not only to those of us who have rebelled against the best that you have for us. But that grace is extended for those of us who seek to live faithfully, who feel like we're trying to do the right things. And I pray that you would protect us from any sense of self-righteousness. That we would realize that we are as desperate and broken and in need of a Savior as the next person. May we take on your heart, Jesus. May we find ourselves willing to man host in the dark places, that the light of your glory and the light of the life that you offer and make possible is the light that we offer to the world around us. May we be a church where prodigals find a home and hear spoken over them who they really are. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray these things. Please stand, let's sing together.